first, a word from our sponsor, Film Movement Plus, a streaming service for fans of independent and foreign film, delivers a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best movies from prestigious festivals around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are acclaimed films you won't find anywhere else, plus newly restored classics and award-winning shorts with new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But Watch With Jen listeners can get a 14-day free trial, plus 30% off their annual subscription using the promo code GEN30. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Welcome to the first episode of Watch with Jen Season 3. I hope you and your loved ones are doing well. In the month and a half that I've had off since the last upload of Season 2, I have been hard at work planning this new season. Coming soon, we have the return of some of your favorite guests from the past and the appearance of some wonderful new ones, including a few VIPs. And this is only the beginning, so I hope you'll check back often to see which contributors and themes you can expect to hear soon. But before we get into today's episode with the incredible S.A. Cosby, I wanted to tell you that this installment is a little bit different than the ones that longtime listeners are used to hearing. You will still hear us break down and analyze the subject, John Huston's filmmaking career, and the three films that Sean has chosen to do just that. But cut into this chat, you will hear me read a handful of colorful, eye-opening, and singular excerpts from a few sources I consulted for research. Because to misquote that famous phrase, when one has been fortunate enough to have read about such a unique life, one has no business keeping it to oneself. I did something a little similar to this in last year's episode on Roger Moore, and it went over very well, but it's a little bit more extensive this time around. However, before I pulled the trigger, I ran it by listeners on social media, and they were all very enthusiastic. So I hope you'll dig it as well. And if not, just blame the Twitter people. Again, I want to thank you for being here. So let's get started with today's show. A multiple, multiple award-winning author from Southeastern Virginia and the man behind such runaway bestsellers as Blacktop Wasteland and Razorblade Tears, I am absolutely honored to welcome S.A. Cosby back to the podcast, or as I'm lucky enough to call him, my dear friend, Sean. Sean, how are you doing and how's 2022 shaping up for you so far? I am so happy to be here with you. I love, love, love you allowing me to uh, engage my cinephile obsessions and, uh, you know, uh, allowing me a, a just an, an amateur film appreciator, uh, no. the ability, uh, <laughs> the honor to, to talk with you who, uh, you know, I have incredible respect for your knowledge of film and your and your insights, insights, I should say, into, into film and film history. So 
It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, 2022 is busy as hell. I tell yes. You. <laughs> yeah, I got all kinds of stuff lined up. Things are happening. Um, you know, I'm working on some new projects. I got some speaking engagements, you know, pending, you know, Omicron Prime. If, yes. you know, if I'll be able to do them or not. So hopefully, uh, like I think in February, I'm supposed to be going to Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie New York. Okay. To speak to Ooh, that's where Vassar is. Yeah. York. Yeah. I'm supposed to be speaking to some people and uh some people from Vassar and uh wow. some people from the uh library association up there and stuff. So that's supposed to be pretty cool. We'll see. Cross our fingers that happens. So um, but uh yeah, a lot of stuff going on, but you know me, I just I basically I just want to write. I just yes. <laughs> I, I just want to write, you know. I, I I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think that writing and publishing are two different things they're both important uh but i'm much better at the writing and i'm still i think a neophyte at the publishing part of it so but uh i'm uh i'm i'm too i'm taking steps to better use my time i was that kid in school i'd never use my time wisely (laughs) (laughs) i always got that i was always i always got the report like you know he's very smart he's 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 quite verbose. He has a great vocabulary. Yada yada yada. Then they like he never uses time wisely. He waits to the last minute and <laughs> ain't much change in thirty years. So I'm trying to get better. I've got a whiteboard now for my my writing instead of my beat up old notebook that was falling apart. And I am saying I'm learning to say no um, to people. I need to get better at that. Sometimes. Yes, <laughs> it's yeah. hard. It's so it hard. You know, and I. And for me, it's like uh, I come from, uh, and I've spoken about this before. I, I, you know, I came from such a really economically disadvantaged background that yeah. it's hard to say no to things because it's like I'm, I'm just waiting for this all to end. So it's like I got to make, you know, make hay while the sun is shining. And yes. um, <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking that I need to kind of relax on that a little bit and just kind of enjoy it more and not be so consumed with waiting for it to end instead of waiting for the end, just enjoy the ride. So that's what I'm trying to do. Oh, well, I'm glad. And I, for one, am thrilled that you love to write so much. I mean, just as your friend and also as a reader. So I can't wait. Congratulations on all your success so far. Every time I talk to you, like every five minutes, one of your books <laughs> has won another award. When I was getting this together, I'm like, when's the last time? I mean, I talk to Sean all the time, but when's the last time we did this? August. Oh, shit. He's probably won like a hundred more awards by now. So I just went with multiple, multiple. So Sean, tell me, what are some of the latest nominations and awards? You know, let's dazzle the listeners here. <laughs> I, well, Razorblade Tears uh, is nominated for the Edgar Award. For the Woo. from the Mystery Writers Association of America, yeah, for their uh, the best novel of the year. That's exciting. That's one of the ones that you dream of as as a writer. You never think yes. you're gonna get. I didn't think I was gonna get. Um, it's nominated for the best novel of the year for the Southern Independent Booksellers Association, which is a huge uh, organization of of independent uh, booksellers throughout the uh, southeast uh, and southern states. Uh, so it's nominated for their award. Uh, it is shortlisted. Um, oh gosh, there's another one. It sounds very pretentious, but I forgot. There's another that's one okay. that's nominated for, and I don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but uh, it, but it's also gotten some notoriety. Um, 
a lot of people named it as their favorite book of the year or one of their favorite one books of mine. Yeah. Um, the essayist uh, Roxanne Gay called it her favorite book of the year. She said she read it twice. So that's oh, an that's wonderful. Honor. Yeah. So that's an incredible honor. Uh, Walter Mosley gave me a shout out on a PBS special, and he said yes. it was his, his favorite book. So um, it's been it's been wow, man. Uh, it's it's um, you know it's it's to quote a line from a, a John Houston film that we're not going to talk about today. It's the stuff dreams are made of. Yes, <laughs> it very much is. And you have so many incredible projects that you're working on behind the scenes. Since we chat so much in the DMs and on game night gabathons, <laughs> I know a lot of what's coming and it's very exciting, but I'm not exactly sure like what I can and can't disclose. And I don't want to get like uh, blacklisted by your publisher, like you're never going to talk to her again. <laughs> so I will let you take it away, Sean. What can we expect from you this year? That you can uh, hopefully, talk about. I, yes. okay. Hopefully, I am going to. I, well, first of all, I've got uh, quite a few short stories coming out in different collections. I'm in a yes, horror writers so of association um, anthology with Stephen Graham Jones and Amakatsu and other uh, writers of color, horror writers of color. Uh, that's I'm very proud of that. Called other voices that will be coming out. Other fears, other voices. That'll be coming out later in the year. I am in an anthology with Gabino Iglesias, who's a great writer, um, called Orphans of Bliss, which is an addiction-themed horror anthology. Um, So I got a short story coming in that. I've I've had a story released in Coolest American Short Stories, uh, which is an anthology that was released earlier, like, uh, this month. Um, I've got a bunch of those short stories. I've got some other projects coming out, and I don't know if I can talk about them just oh, you're yet. Fine. But yeah, <laughs> but I will <laughs> say this: um, I'm working on a on a young adult novel uh, uh, or a middle a middle age young um, middle grade young adult novel with someone um, that I can't say who it is yet, but it hopefully we'll be announcing that soon. And uh, I think it's okay to talk about this. I. I I, I, I'm working with Audible on a uh, yes. an eight episode dramatic podcast. So, so that was that's interesting. That actually has given me the confidence to try to write a screenplay next year. Um, Ooh, like we'll an original screenplay, not based on one of your books. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, nah, just an so original exciting. idea. So, yes. I have an idea. I talked to. Um, I, I, I'm going to name drop now. I <laughs> I talked to it. Jordan Harper about it. And, award-winning author um, yeah she rise shock and our and and our good buddy um i i came up with the idea of a uh, of a uh, i love the movie warrior with uh, uh me with too tom, tom uh, hardy uh, oh i tom think hardy you told me the plot of this Joel a little Editor. bit yeah yeah so i w- had this idea of warrior meets goodwill hunting and so that's the screenplay i'm thinking of writing and oh, the tentative title the is a lot of that uh, every <laughs> so the tentative title is everybody has a plan and it's about this kid who's a uh a, a uh mma fighter he's trying to get to the big leagues he's trained by his father who was a former boxer okay. um he and he's basically supporting his family and uh and he uh his daytime job when he's not fighting is he's a welder but his secret desire his secret passion is he likes to sculpt with his welding and so he gets an opportunity to go either one or two ways, either go through the professional uh, MMA fighting 
or go into like an art program. So that's sort of the conflict. So uh, I'm working on ideas of, uh, of that screenplay. I bought all the screenplay books. So I have Save the Cat and Story and, yeah. and all that stuff. So I'm reading through those. So, um, Very cool. so hopefully next year I'll take a break and I'll be able to work on that. That's that's me taking a break. Take a break a and write a screenplay. <laughs> I love this. Yes. No, that'll be so fun. And then the, I mean, Warrior meets Goodwill Hunting. So how you like them self-pause or like, what is your... <laughs> <laughs> no. He says it while he's punching somebody. How yes, you like those there apples? you go. <laughs> yeah. No, I can't wait. Yes. I think that sounds like a really cool idea. And, uh, you know, I would be willing to read. I am one of Jordan's first readers. I'm going to name drop too. Yes, we love our Jordan. And I would be happy and honored to read anything you write as oh, well. Yes. I would be <laughs> so too, get it, get I would, it written. I would be too, Take that vacation as well. I would saying. be I would be too anxious for you to read it. I'd have to go through some treatments before I let you read it. Oh, I have too much sweet. respect for your uh your insight. <laughs> <laughs> too funny. Well, we're here to follow up on a brilliant idea that you had way back in November, I believe, to take a look at the legendary career of writer-director John Huston. But first, however, filmmaking Houston style. Excerpts from John Huston interviews edited by Robert Emmett Long. Quote, I have no standard approach to actors. I try to guide each actor through his part without letting him know that, as director, I am really acting all of the parts myself. Furthermore, I look upon the camera as still another actor on the set. The relationship between the actors is important, but the relationship between the actors and the camera is also important. The camera can be as eloquent as the finest actor if you know how to use it. You have to be the right distance from an actor when he says a line, for example. Very rarely has my best camera work been remarked on by either an audience or the critics because good camera work should be unobtrusive. One setup should naturally lead to the next without anyone noticing. It's like a ballet. A good scene tells you how it should be shot. I begin by letting the actors sort themselves out. And often, as I found in directing my very first film, they do the scene fairly well without any suggestions from me at all, falling into some of the setups quite naturally. A bad scene is the most difficult to shoot since there is no way that you can shoot it to make it look any better than it is. I think of pictures as being quite pure when they are truly realized and closer perhaps to the thought processes than any other form. The ideal picture is almost as though the real were behind your own eyes and you were projecting your own thoughts. It's only when the picture falters that your thoughts stumble as a result of the pictures faltering. Something wrong appears on the screen and the dream is broken, end quote. Houston liked to illustrate this point himself. He does this repeatedly throughout the book as follows, quote, look at that lamp, he says, pointing to a brass floor lamp halfway across the dark green room. 
Now look at me. Look back at the lamp. Now look at me. Do you see what you did? The second time, you blinked. Those are cuts. After the first time, you know that there's no reason to pan from me to the lamp because you know what's in between. Your mind cuts the scene. You behold the lamp and you behold me. So in cutting the scene, you cut with the physiology. End quote. We'll go into the films one by one in a moment. But before we do that, I wanted to talk to you first about Houston as such a compelling figure, this complex, contradictorily tough and tender filmmaker and raconteur, a boxer, a painter, an actor, a journalist, a member of the Mexican cavalry, even a hunter, gambler, husband of five wives, lover to many more and father to great children, Danny and Angelica, just to name two. He's the son of actor Walter and a writer, horsewoman, and fiercely independent mother. This man lived. What I'm most eager to chat about with you is how refreshing it is, too, that you didn't just want to focus on his early films uh, here, but were perhaps even more intrigued by his later movies as well. I know we chose for those listening Key Largo, Fat City, and Pritzi's Honor to discuss in greater detail. But first, Sean, why don't you tell me about your impressions of John Huston overall, and maybe how you first became aware of him as well? Well, I first became aware of John Huston. <laughs> Oddly enough, uh, as a little kid, I saw him in an episode as an actor, uh, yeah. in an episode of an Alfred Hitchcock Presents uh, TV show. Yeah, I, I forgot the name. Of, yeah, with, uh, <laughs> the gambler. Wasn't it Melanie when, Griffith in it? And, Melanie yeah. Griffith in it. Yep. And uh, he plays the gambler in Las in Las Lighter. Vegas, who um, champ. Yeah, he challenges a man. Uh, to the man says, my lighter never misses. And John Houston <laughs> in that John Houston voice is like, would you care to place a wager on that? And so um, he challenges him to light, the, to light the lighter 10 times in a row. And if he can't light it 10 times in a row, he loses his finger. And I remember watching, he just was so magnetic on screen. Yes. And I remember watching it and I was like, God, this dude, he's just, you can't take your eyes off. And I remember the line, one of the lines that, that stuck with me was when the guy is talking to his girlfriend, Melanie Griffith. He's like, well, look, you know, go get some ice down the hall on a bucket. And if he chops the finger off, we can take it to the hospital and they can put it back on. And John Hughes, no, no, the finger belongs to me. And I was like, that's so weird and creepy, but also such power in that statement. It's like, and the power of obsession. And so I remember after the TV show was going on, and then I'm dating myself now, I'm an old man, but when the TV show was no. going off and it was, he, and, <laughs> and his name was in the credits, I was like, John Houston. I'm like, okay. So I went to the library uh, the next day. Yeah, we had to I look things up, you know, with cards. Yeah, yeah. I could just Google it. Then. Yes. Yeah, I could just Google it. So I went nope. to the library and I looked up, I looked up uh, John Houston. Uh, our library had a, uh, a film encyclopedia as a part oh, of his reference nice. uh, stuff. And so I looked up John Houston and I was like, oh man, he's done all these films and stuff. And so I had never really seen any of his films. I, I didn't, that was my first experience with him. And so the first film I saw by John Houston was, uh, uh, you know, uh, Maltese Falcon. Yeah, and, I think uh, the same. Yep. 
And so it just dovetailed with things that I was interested in, obviously crime, mystery. I was already a huge Sam, Sam Spade fan. I had mm-hmm. read all the Sam Spade, all the Dashiell Hammett stuff. And uh, and even though Humphrey Bogart looks nothing like Sam Spade is described in the book no. story, uh, he doesn't have the, <laughs> the, the 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 satanic V in his in his chin, um, and he's not blonde. But uh, I watched a movie, and there was something. As a kid, I, I I didn't have the art the the vocabulary to articulate the feelings or the things that I was noticing in the movie. But as an adult, I can say, the Maltese Falcon. It is one of the foundational films of the early film noir movement. Yes, Everything that we take as a cliche for, for film noir is a part, it comes from the Maltese Falcon, the hard-bitten detective, the femme fatale, the mysterious adversaries, the adversarial yet friendly relationship with the police, the overall sense of ennui that fills the movie. And yeah. so after that, I became a huge fan. And so I tracked down... Um, movies uh, that he had directed or acted in um i remember uh where i live i I grew up i still live pretty close where i grew up in a very rural area and so um there was a uh movie theater uh, Mm -hmm. on the near the college uh campus uh and it was an art house theater so you would see you know uh small independent films and stuff there and they had a john houston retrospective and i was 20 i just dropped out of college and so i went to this retrospective and then i stayed there all day um, so I watched, uh, was it African Queen, Maltese yeah. Falcon, oh my gosh. uh, God, it was a bunch of other ones too. And so I just stayed there all day. And, and the thing that I'll say about John Houston, so we can move on is that he doesn't have just one unique signature style. He's That's a throwback to yes. the, yeah. yeah, he's a throwback to like Billy Wilder and, and, and those type of directors where I, they could direct anything. It's mm-hmm. not the style, it's the verve and the professionalism that he brings to the to the table. You know, yeah. it's not like uh, to to mention somebody a modern auteur like Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson yep. has a particular style, and not everybody likes it, but uh-huh. that's whatever. That's his but thing, though. You know, yep. it's a Wes Anderson film. With John Houston, and and we'll talk about it more in detail. But you can look at Key Largo and look at Fat City. And you could you could make the argument like, wow, two different directors directed this, you know, mm-hmm. or Prissy's honor. There's, he doesn't lean on stylistic choices. Uh, he doesn't no. lean on flashy tricks. It's more. It's all about. He's a character's director. He's an actor's director, and that's he the thing that I find fascinating, especially especially as a, a fan of film and somebody who. You know, I, I didn't go to film school, but I'm a huge cinephile, yeah. and so. Um, there's something about his utter professional. And I think he's a, like I said, a throwback to Billy Wilder and, and and some of the other the 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 mid '60s and '50s directors that you know you you directed anything because that's where your next paycheck was from. You know, the yep. directors weren't as powerful back then, so you kind of had to be a jack of all trades. And I think you know, like I'll I say, Billy Wilder again. Him and Billy Wilder, I think, are the two that mastered that jack of all trade mentality of the best yeah so that that was my experience yeah yeah and they were both writers for hire before they became directors <laughs> and had mm-hmm. some issues with like some changes that were made in their scripts and uh just wanted more <laughs> control and so did it sort of like preston sturges who i talked about last year mm-hmm. with jordan harper around the same period so yeah mm-hmm. uh, i was looking back i think maltese falcon might have been one of my early ones but 
I gotta say, I think my first John Huston movie was probably Annie. And it's another one really? that, yes, he made Annie. And, um, you know, it doesn't fit in with these tales of, you know, beautiful losers, which is kind of a theme <laughs> that we see throughout his filmography. Stylistically, he's very different. He has said famously, like, he never directs actors or I don't direct mm-hmm. them at all. If they ask questions, he will maybe try to guide them on how he sees it, but not what is expected of them because he thinks, like, mm-hmm. you know, all it is is casting well and that they'll mm-hmm. find it and they'll bring things that he could never think of. So he's a big mm-hmm. craftsman. Also, with style, he personally felt like it was a sin to put a director's style from one film to the next. Even themes that people were bringing up, like at the end of Treasure of Sierra Madre or the end of Asphalt Jungle, you know, like the pursuit of something or Maltese Falcon, and they get the thing, but it isn't the thing, or it, you know, floats away or whatever it is, or they die. That seems Mm -hmm. to be a recurring thing that he. Uh, visits and he said that was even unconsciously so he's just a big Mm, reader yeah he loves to read he's always um, one of those people that was traveling with multiple books and so for him it was all about the text and the character just the people the relationships and what is the scene about what is the literature so I think yeah he's just a fascinating figure yeah, he's a fascinating guy, and and outside, I think also, he you know he was he takes that he has that very workman like mentality about film. He's yeah. not too pre- he wasn't too precious about it, you no. know. As being a journalist, <laughs> it's weird. He had this combination of being a journalist, so you had this very precise way of looking at things, but then he was also a painter, so he brought this yeah. sort of artistic, you know, joie de vivre to it. And I think I think. Um, those kind of directors, there's not many people doing that kind of work nowadays, I think. Everybody mm-hmm. has gravitated toward a particular style and imprint. This is, you know, this is my thing. This is my mm-hmm. brand. And and I think, I, I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing, but I think it definitely is something that's changed filmmaking. Yeah, it just um, depends on the approach. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you brought up the painting. Uh, it was so fascinating. I, I got a handful of books on him. Um, including his autobiography in an open book, which is just one of the most compelling. I mean, talk about a guy who tells stories. This guy spins a yarn like he wouldn't (laughs) believe about his family and his life. But I mean, he went to Paris to study painting. And then he was also a boxer in like Southern California. And just it seemed like, you know, there's the line about nowadays because of the economy, people change jobs like seven times. Well, like John Houston was doing that before he was 25. Yeah. Kind of I love that he became this, he became this like this libertine yeah. in, in later in life where he's just like, I'm going to dance and drink and make love to all these women and, paint <laughs> yes, and live in Mexico and make movies. Yeah. yeah. Live in Mexico and do all these crazy things. And, and like you said, a life well lived. And it was like filmmaking was, I wouldn't say near the bottom, but filmmaking never seemed like it was the most important thing to him living no. was the most important mm-hmm. thing you know yeah. and i think those exp- and i under- i think as a creative person i understand that you know i love writing i love writing it- it's the only thing i think i'm really good at and i don't mean that facetiously or or egotistically but i also love you know speaking about the pandemic pandemic has been so hard on me personally because yes. i love being around people 
I yeah. love, I'm such an extroverted person. And it's, and it's part of it's for writing. Like I like observing people, but part of it's just the way I like to be. I like to live. I like to experience things. And so um, I definitely understand that kind of John Houston mentality where it's like, I'm going to sample as much of life, you know, that I can, you know, as much as I have to, as it has to offer. And then I'll get around to making some movies and I'll use those life experiences to make my movies and make my art better. Um, and I think we're losing, you know, going to old man tangent, and, yeah, we <laughs> um, but I, yes. think, I think we're losing some of that to a certain extent with our isolated, insular, social media driven lives. I agree. You don't have, you know, you see so many people, I understand being an introvert, but I see so many people sometimes like, I'm so glad I don't have to talk to people. And I'm so, they always people out there and all that kind of stuff. And I understand <laughs> anxiety and all that. But I mean, you don't have to talk to people. Go outside and literally smell a flower. Yep. Go for a walk through the woods if you can. Go yeah. to a beach, you know, go down. Uh, the last time I was in New York City, a friend of mine is a professor at NYU and she had collaborated with uh, some folks and they did a, um, they did a, a an outside uh, art artistic uh exhibit uh which combined dance and art and she's a geologist and so it was combining all these different things and i got to walk around and, and see it and some of it was really weird but some uh-huh. of it was really interesting but i wouldn't trade that experience for anything no you know and it might make it way in a, it might make its way in a store it may not it may just be and also um they didn't want you to um use your phone during this thing it was on governor's oh, island in that. new york city yeah and so it was like you had to be in the moment. And so I will always have that memory, hopefully, that, you know, of that that interesting, eclectic, eccentric experience. And I think to do, tie this back with Houston, he lived that kind of life to the fullest. And you see it in his life and in his work. You know, I love that he wasn't like like I said it before, I uh, repeat myself, but he just wasn't he didn't take it so seriously. You know, he was no, a professional, I agree with you. but he yeah. also knew to enjoy himself. So, yes, he was all about the relationships or like kind of the excuse of hanging out. He worked with a lot of the same people. Again, a lot of my favorite filmmakers tend to do that sort of like in real life. You get a crew that you're comfortable with and mm-hmm. then you want to do everything together. As Sean knows, like our game nights <laughs> and everything. Yeah, we have kind of a tight group going. But yeah, that mm-hmm. was um, John Houston in a nutshell. But following his success as a screenwriter, Houston burst onto the filmmaking scene with his directorial debut in 1941, The Maltese Falcon, which cemented his friendship with arguably his most important collaborator, actor Humphrey Bogart, with whom he worked several times and on such vital collaborations as The Treasure of the Sierra Madre and The African Queen as well. Yet one of Sean and my favorites is the 1948 Cracker Jack thriller Key Largo, which Houston not only directed, but also wrote along with Richard Brooks based on the 1939 play by Maxwell Anderson, released the same year as Treasure of Sierra Madre, which garnered Houston Oscars for Best Director and Adapted Screenplay, and won his father, Walter Houston, an award for Best Supporting Actor, too. But first, however, Houston as Gambler on the making of Key Largo from An Open Book by John Houston. Quote, Jerry Wald was the producer. He put Richard Brooks with me to help with the screenplay, and we went down to the Keys, my first visit there, and wrote it on the spot. Evelyn and Dick's wife? 
Harriet accompanied us. We arrived out of season and there weren't any suitable places to stay, but we finally discovered a small hotel which looked attractive and persuaded the owners to open the place for us before the season started. We had no sooner settled down to work than they moved in a dice table, a roulette wheel, and a blackjack table. Thereafter, when Dick and I weren't writing, I was gambling. I was in a bad streak and lost more than I could afford to. So one day I told the owner to give me another thousand in checks, but that was it. From now on, I said, no more. He gave me the checks and I promptly proceeded to lose them. I went back to him. Okay, forget what I said. Give me another thousand. I can't do that. When you set your limit, that's it. I got angry. He was entirely right and I was entirely wrong, but I got sore at him and hardly spoke to him from that time on. I behaved very badly about the whole thing. But being refused any more credit was a blessing in disguise. I went back to work on the script in earnest. We were in the dining room the night before we were to leave, and the owner and his wife were entertaining guests at a nearby table. I overheard the owner say something about the immaculate conception, and I pointed at this like a bird dog. Do you know what the phrase immaculate conception means? The owner turned to me. Why, it means that Mary had Jesus without, you know, without being touched by a man. You don't know what you're talking about. I was being deliberately offensive. The Immaculate Conception has nothing to do with the birth of Christ. The owner huffed and snorted and argued. When he ran down, I said, I'll bet you $500 you're wrong. He accepted. And we went in and called the Monsignor in Florida City. It was late at night, but the Monsignor came to the phone, listened to the argument, and said, the Immaculate Conception has nothing to do with the birth of Christ. It refers to the fact that Mary was born without original sin. Then he went on to tell us what, when the dogma was proclaimed. The owner paid off the $500 bet, and with this stake, I returned to the dice table and won back almost everything I had lost. Dick who was also well down at this point, followed my action and won back most of his losses as well. End quote. Key Largo won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress Claire Trevor, who steals every scene she's in as the gin-soaked, alcoholic, ex-nightclub singer-turned-mistress of the intimidating gangster Johnny Rocco, played by Edward G. Robinson. As the film opens, Bogart's existentially adrift World War II veteran travels down to the Florida Keys to pay his respects in person to the widow and father of one of the men who served underneath him. Lauren McCall and Lionel Barrymore star as the family members who operate the Hotel Largo, which is where the bulk of the thrilling action plays out as caught there in the middle of a hurricane, no less. Robinson's heavy and his men hold everyone hostage at gunpoint to help assist them until they can head for Cuba. Filled with tight frames and all action captured with quick cuts and a constantly moving camera, 
It's a strong, unbearably tense thriller that I love for so many reasons, not the least of which is the way that it waits 26 minutes to kick everything off and introduce us to Robinson naked in the bathtub with his cigar looking like a deadly unfurled crustacean out of the shell, as Houston explained, and perhaps <laughs> anticipating the fact that he would later direct Moby Dick down the road as well. But enough from me. So how about you, Sean? What are your thoughts on Key Largo? So I first saw Key Largo as an afternoon um, movie um, on on basic television channel, not even basic cable, like just our basic local channel. Um, And uh, my grandfather, who who couldn't read but loved film, loved movies. Uh, And so he loved Humphrey Bogart. And he loved Humphrey Bogart. Uh, He loved... Humphrey Bogart, his, his top three actors were Humphrey Bogart, Sidney Poitier, and Burt Reynolds. And not in that That's order, a good but, list. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so um, we it was a double feature with Sierra, Treasure of Sierra Madre, you know. And uh, gosh, the, that that movie, I could talk about that movie for all, all day. So I'm going to get the started on that. The same year. But, I can't even. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. He did, he did the, again, Treasure of Sierra Madre and Key Largo are thematically similar in, in a mm-hmm. way but tonally very different and, very. and, and style very different and uh key largo he, uh anyway i watched this movie on television with my my grandfather there and uh, my grandfather hated Edward G. robinson oh, <laughs> Every really? time he didn't G. like robinson, little caesar <laughs> he didn't like he didn't know well he didn't like him in this role every time he oh, came on the ooh, screen yeah. he's like he's like that little squirt <laughs> that little, that little so and so is yeah. like. I hope Humphrey. He's like. I hope Bogey punches him in the mouth. And um, but uh, but you know, as I got older and I've watched it numerous times since then, the different like how Key Largo is is basically using the same blocking and staging as a play. Yes, except it when is. you go out to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the same blocking and staging as a play, so that makes it very claustrophobic. Yeah. Even though it's in Florida and it's very this very uh, ostensibly. A beautiful landscape, this warm weather uh, paradise. It's a very mm-hmm. claustrophobic film, and like you said, he lets it he lets it simmer for a while before anything happens. You he sets up the the, the situation. You see Frank McCloud. You see yeah. all the other characters. You get to know the 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 inner workings of their relationships. You know the the toxic. I guess now we would call it the toxic relationship between Rocco. And uh, and and his girlfriend or ex girlfriend or you know off again yeah. on again. Um, you get to see the the emotional fragility of the parents of the man that Frank served with. Um, this I, and and not just because they've been overcome or overrun by um, Rocco's men, but because of the, of the loss that they've suffered. And so it's all filtered through that post war existential malaise that you know so many filmmakers did well i think houston is one of the ones that did it the best um and of course because he experienced the war yeah Mm -hmm. yeah exactly and it's anchored by and just another incredible performance of from humphrey bogart an actor that had such an incredible run of just top-notch um performances um and and and, you know you see on frank mcleod's face this sort of loss it's almost like running up against Rock on his men gave him purpose. 
Yeah, you know, it, it gave him something to do. He wasn't, yeah, he came down there to pay his respects, but he's adrift. You know, today we would call it PTSD, maybe, yeah. but he's adrift. He doesn't know what to do. And then seeing these enemies give him something he could focus on and something that gave him his life a, a purpose again. And it's just a masterclass in ratcheting up tension and not ratcheting up tension through salaciousness. It's mm-hmm. ratcheting up tension through real world interactions among people. You know, you can watch a movie like, like a slasher movie or something like Friday 13th or something like that, where attention is all camera tricks and sound design and, and jump scares. Mm-hmm. And a movie like Key Largo, you know, it's the difference between it's the difference between chopped hamburger and steak, you know, it's the difference between uh, you know, rock good whiskey. And, and uh, you know, a 20-year scotch because Key Largo is turning up the tension by putting these characters against each other mm-hmm. in all these different combinations. And, it's and, the human And drama. the combinations become yeah. more, mm-hmm, and it becomes more and more frantic. And it's like a, it's like a, a, a nuclear bomb. It's all these different things bumping into each other is going to explode. Mm-hmm. But you don't know how and you don't know when. And, um, and so you can't take your eyes off. You can't look away. And I knew it had, I wonder, I would love to talk to somebody, I wish I could talk to somebody who had seen um, Treasure Sierra Madre and then went to see Key Largo. Oh, for the first time? I I have to imagine, yeah, I have to imagine that that tonal shift was shocking to them because like, you know, if you liked or loved Treasure Sierra Madre, you wanted more of that. And he doesn't give you more than Key Largo. He goes a totally different route. You know, the, the desperation in Key Largo is not the greed that consumes men's souls like uh his father delivers that great line in treasure of sierra madre it's the desperation of people at the end of their rope literally you know physically and you know st- uh, um, metaphorically and he just like i said he turns it up and turns it up and turns it up until it blows up and also i'll say something here too about this the blocking and the, and the staging he does he he makes it almost like a fixed camera point of view so it's always a bunch of people in the scene, but it's always stuff going on the, on the edges of the scene too. Mm-hmm. You can see Lionel Barrymore in the background doing something in the kitchen. You can see uh, Claire Trevor, uh, her looking at Rocco. And it, so you never have this, it's never Humphrey Bogart versus, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Edward G. Robinson. It's everybody versus everybody for a long time. Until they go out to sea, and then it becomes a little more traditional, uh, you know, crime noir uh, uh, tale. But even then, it's Harvey Borgart using his skills and his 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 acumen to take out the, the the gangsters, not just physical brawn. And uh, I think again, I think that's something that Houston brought because he had been in a war, because it's not always because he had fought an actual war. You know, that's not always just physical might makes right. You have to outthink your enemy. You have to outflank your enemy, literally. And so I think he brought that sort of sensibility to it that I thought I find it's it's fascinating. I'll say one more thing about about, about him and his his perspective. Um, it's different than like say a Sam Peckinpah, mm-hmm. where Peckinpah was fascinated, I think, with the effects of violence, the physical and sociological and psychological effects of violence. Houston's not that much involved or he's not really concerned with violence. He's concerned with the lead up. He's concerned with the preamble. 
Yeah. And I find that as a writer fascinating. That's something like a lot of people will read my books and be like, oh, man, they're so violent. And they are. I, I can't lie. But I'm <laughs> fascinated with <laughs> a lot of, lot of wrenches and shovels and axes being used creative, creative, creatively. But I'm fascinated with the leader. And a wood chipper. <laughs> and a wood chipper. Yeah. It's like. <laughs> I'm, that's a that's that was a tribute to Fargo. So. You bet. Uh, but um, but I'm fascinated with the preamble. I'm fascinated oh, yeah. with what got us to this point. And and Houston is too, especially in Key Largo. We'll talk about it more. Chrissy's honor and Fat City. But he's fascinated with the preamble. The violence is almost an afterthought. Whereas, like I said, with Peck and Paul, it's like he wants to see the bullets. He wants to see the machine guns. He wants to see the effects of violence. Uh, so I think both uh, approaches are, are are legitimate. I just find it interesting that Houston chose to go that route. Yeah, absolutely. He was a documentarian during the war. Um, his most famous uh, documentary, Let There Be Light, was like, you know, censored and hidden from view uh, from the U.S. government because it followed the men who've been like shell-shocked after the war. I believe right now it is streaming on Netflix. So I'd highly recommend that as well. And he himself, so he came back, he understood the existential malaise or the ennui, everything that Sean was saying. He went to the stage right away. Uh, He always loved the stage. I mean, of course, Walter Houston was his father. He had done some acting on the stage as a kid. He said in an interview once that what, he found like the best preparation to make movies was uh, Eugene O'Neill, knowing O'Neill and everything O'Neill told him. And he was mad at uh, Jack Warner because he refused (laughs) to let uh, John Huston direct Eugene O'Neill's A Moon for the Misbegotten back in 1946 when he first came back. Because like I said, he went to the stage. I think he directed something Sartre made. Uh, I don't know if it was no exit. It might've been, but that's what he did first. So he was like fascinated by the existential and then uh, wanted to do more of that with O'Neill. Warner said no. So he vowed that Key Largo would be his last movie for Warner Brothers. And so he was very upset about that. It was funny because when I rewatched, I've seen Key Largo a bunch of times, but when I rewatched it this time, it was just a few weeks after I had seen uh, Die Hard once again for the annual holiday uh, rewatch. <laughs> that too, I don't think people realize when you're like going back and rewatching it, or if you're new to it. I've talked to people who are new to the movie. It takes a full first act for you mm-hmm. to for them to actually take over the building. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. that long until you see Alan Rickman, but it's something kind mm-hmm. of similar. Like it's a different thing. We get to know um, Bruce Willis's character when he comes you know, to the coast to have a few laughs. And uh, he goes and sees Holly and we know their relationship is bad. She's using her maiden name. There's all this drama. Same thing going on here. Bogart has left his job. He was like a newspaper circulation manager, I believe. Uh, So he's Mm -hmm. seeing these people. And you're also getting some little peeks at Bacall, who's the widow, kind of checking out Bogart. I mean, there's a little implication that they might get together by the end or in the future, obviously. And so for 26 minutes, it's just a after war, what's going on movie. But there's this element of danger lurking in the background when you see Rocco's men. And also when you meet uh, that lounge singer who was actually based on Gay Orlova. 
I believe, mm. which was uh, Lucky Luciano's mistress in real life. Oh, wow. So, yep, you had something Gay Dawn, I think, in the movie, Gay Orlova, mm. I believe, in real life, that that was her. Robinson didn't want to play a heavy because he was tired <laughs> of it. I mean, he's most famous probably for those gangster roles like Little Caesar, mm. of course, but he didn't like it. Uh, Houston said he thinks that's why he collected fine art was to try to like mm. prove his detractors wrong or that I'm an intelligent, um, you know, articulate man of, of art and culture. And so <laughs> he, he wasn't sure about it, but he was in his fifties. Uh, he joked that he would be lucky to get any billing at all. When people asked, well, you got second billing to Bogart. He's like, I'd be lucky to get any billing. So he wasn't <laughs> sure he wanted to do it. He did it. And my God, what a towering performance. But everything mm. you pointed out about um, Bogart being uncertain, like this isn't a guy who is, you know, toying with terrorists like in Die Hard. He mm. doesn't really put up his dukes. The, the dad in the wheelchair does. Bogart isn't mm. sure how to get one over on them and has to wait for the hurricane to uh, start blowing at the end on the boat to Cuba before he acts. And yeah, so it's the prelude to violence, and it's so compelling. Oh, yeah. And I think you brought up, brought up an interesting point that we don't see that in crime drama, action dramas anymore. Like, I think Die Hard, I won't say is the last, but it's the last one I can remember, where you get a full 15, 20 minutes yeah. of, char- of character work, of you learn about John McClane, his fear of flying, the, the, the fact that he doesn't have his shoes on, the fact that him and yep. Holly are separated. And this is like a sort of maybe last ditch attempt to save their marriage and, and all those things. And um, I don't think that screenwriters or directors are allowed to do that anymore. No, it you has know, to be I like think, first 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. First 10 minutes. Immerse me. Get me. Get me now. Yeah. And I think <laughs> I th- I, I think your independent filmmakers can do that. I think your yeah. uh, indie filmmakers can still do that. But, and that's a whole conversation for another day. But if you're a big budget filmmaker or a mm-hmm. big studio filmmaker, it's hard to lay down the foundation, the infrastructure of character development and then get to the action. You know, yeah. people will complain. I saw um, a good friend of ours, uh, Sean Burns, shared a tweet that someone had uh, sent out from Sundance. And they were they were tweeting during the movie that oh it's taking twenty six minutes to get to the point or something and it's like you know wow. for me <laughs> films yeah and 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 that's, that's what Sean was saying too uh, also but, just tweeting uh, during a for movie me, <laughs> yeah it just be in the moment but it, outside of that for me film is like a good film uh, a film that makes you think it's like a really sumptuous meal yeah you know. I want to be immersed in it. I want to take my time. I want to get to know the characters. I want to know these people's motivations, especially if it's a crime movie, especially especially if they're going to be violence in the movie, Mm -hmm. because I want to know what drives you. You know, I mean, we all can watch a mindless action movie, and I've watched my more than my share. I love mindless action movies. Yeah, but but I think when you when you when you're if you're trying to be serious if you're trying to create a serious film experience that's going to have violence and passion and and indecision and all those things and all the the full sweep of of emotions and i think you need time to let the thing breathe and um you know uh there's a movie called um oh gosh in the pines 
Uh, oh, the place beyond I can't think the pines. Of the right title. Yep, place beyond the pines. Thank you. Yeah, with Ryan Gosling and, and Bradley Cooper. Good movie. And that's yeah. a movie that does. That's a movie that does that. It lets it breathe. It lets it. It lets you immerse yourself in the characterizations and the characters' lives, mm-hmm. so that when something happens to the characters, it has weight. I'm a big fan of that when I'm writing. I want character. I want you to know the characters, so when I do something to them, when I put them through hell. It bothers you. It it affects you. Um, I did that with Blacktop Wasting, but I really did that with Raised by Tears. And I'm not going to give away the ending for anybody who hasn't, hasn't read it. No. But there's some things that happen to some characters in Raised by Tears. And, 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 and I've had people <laughs> write me that they were so angry about it. But I, they were angry because they cared about those characters. Because I really Highest tried compliment. hard to build that yep. foundation. Yeah. So, you know, and I, but I mean, you know, I, I think filmmaking obviously has changed and, and everything, but I don't think storytelling has changed. And I think that's uh, something that a lot of folks don't, don't realize. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I love that film. But next up, we jump ahead 24 years to 1972 to talk about another movie that garnered one of its cast members, Susan Tyrell, an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. All three of these today receive such an honor, by the way. Uh, We're talking about Fat City, which finds John Huston embracing his youth as a boxer in Southern California. And this adaptation of the 1969 novel by Leonard Gardner, who also wrote the script for Houston's film, a critically acclaimed downbeat character drama designed to take the romance out of the sport the movie is set essentially in the raw and rugged skid row of Stockton, California, stars Jeff Bridges as a handsome, wide-eyed, up-and-coming amateur boxer who is put on his path by the older, messier, beat down by bad luck, bad decisions, bad drink, and bad everything. Uh, the <laughs> early 30-something Stacy Keach, who is mostly out, but has some thoughts of getting back in to the fight game. Moody and atmospheric, the film also stars Candy Clark before she made American Graffiti. It was gorgeously shot by legendary cinematographer Conrad L. Hall and features images a little softer and blown out by the sunlight or worn down by the shadow kind of like its characters and it was Houston's intent he wanted it to feel like when you've been in a bar for hours and you walk out and you're blinded by the sun and you can't quite you know make out everything that's what he wanted but first however a quick excerpt on the making of fat city from an open book by John Houston I'm often asked what lies behind my choice of material with the implication that I have a special message to convey I don't. When I make a picture, it's simply because I believe the story is worth telling. It has been said that I have a tendency to choose stories whose point is the irony of man's pursuit of an impossibly elusive goal. If this has, in fact, been a constant motif of my pictures, I must confess to being unaware of it. Admittedly, certain themes trigger a deeper personal response than others, and success stories per se are not really of much interest to me. I'm convinced that there are more failures than men of achievement among us. Moreover, the best men tend to think of themselves as failures. Looking back on his life's work, Michelangelo expressed the desire to destroy it 
Manzu told me recently that he considers himself a total failure when he compares his work to that of Phidias, Pisano, and Bernini. I made a series of films between 1968 and 1973 that were either outright failures or at best only moderately successful. There is no doubt about the meaning of the word failure in the motion picture industry. The industry operates for profit and a failure is a film that doesn't make money. The failures I made were Simple Baby, A Walk with Love and Death, The Kremlin Letter, Fat City, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, and The Macintosh Man. I had done bits of films in the United States, but it was a long time since I'd made an entire picture there. Ray Stark was responsible for my reappearance on the American scene with Fat City, a novel by Leonard Gardner. Fat City is a term jazz musicians used to denigrate success with a capital S. It's about people who are beaten before they start, but who never stop dreaming. Fat City had a great reception when it was first shown at Cannes in 1972. After the screening, I walked into an adjoining hall to meet the press, and they gave me a standing ovation. When that happened, I was sure it was going to be a success, but no. Wherever it was shown, it was beautifully reviewed, but the audiences didn't care for it. It's a fine picture, no question, well-conceived, well-acted, made with deep love and considerable understanding on the part of everyone involved. I suppose the public simply found it too sad. It has at least one devoted fan. Ray Stark considers it the best picture he has ever produced, end quote. But Sean, why don't you take it away on Fat City and its fascinating characters? Because I know you love it. Fat City, man. Fat City is this weird sort of elegy to yeah. youth and 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 to the choices that we make uh, in our youth. And I think it's a a strong and poetic and lyrical mediation on time, on the passage of time. Um, it is, you know. And I I write a lot about broken men. Uh, somebody mm-hmm. accused me of being uh, the bard of broken men. But I don't, <laughs> I, and that's not the name I gave myself, but, um, but no, I don't but think it fits, man. <laughs> thank you very much. But I don't think there's any film, uh, there's a couple maybe, but Fast City is one of the few films that really invests itself and investigates the idea of broken masculinity. Of, yeah. of what that really looks like and what that really means. And, you know, Stacey Keach's character, Billy Tully, is, you know, he's that proverbial gone to seed, you know, could have been a contender type character. Um, but he doesn't have Brando's verve. He doesn't have Brando's panache. You know, he's he's not uh, someone that you root for, really. You, mm-hmm. you don't root for Billy Tully. You hope he doesn't die you hope he doesn't get hurt because he just makes bad decision after bad decision and um and you can see the loss and the fractured mentality on his face you know like i said the the road not taken you know the the path that he didn't walk and the choices yeah. that you know he should have made we blew it as they and, say and when easy he's, rider mm, yep yeah and then when he sees uh jeff bridges character it's a chance to reclaim some of his lost youth. You know, Jeff Bridges is sort of an avatar for him. 
of course, yeah. that goes terribly awry because, you know, you can't make people your puppets. Um, and then no. his relationship with Susan Terrell's character is, I think, one of the, well, I don't say one of the first, but um, it is a really good, strong uh, illustration of a toxic relationship. And not a toxic yes. relationship where both people are evil and they're trying to kill no. each other. A toxic relationship where they both are dragging each other down. It's like they're both in a pit of quicksand yep. and they keep grabbing each other instead yes. of letting one of them, letting each other go. Trying to climb back up out. on the other one, basically. Yeah, on yes. each other's back. Yeah. And Tyrell's performance is so, it's so, it's fragile yet strong, complex. It's, 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 it's uh, disturbing at some points. It's, it's hard to look disturbing. at. Yeah, it is. It was at first I was like, geez, you know, cause I have to yeah. admit this was the first time I had seen this movie or if I had seen it in the past, I did not remember it. So I'm counting it as a first watch. She was a theater actress, somebody that Houston knew from the stage. And boy, she just acts the hell out of it. He likes these loud sort of uh, women who've been around, uh, I guess, in David Mamet speak. This isn't my phrase, but they would be called broads, essentially, like mm-hmm. these um you know, floozies you would see at the bar. He he loves mm-hmm. these women, but at first you're like, why is this guy attracted to her? And that's just another in a long run of bad decisions that he's making. Mm-hmm. And Bridges is very much, uh, Houston puts it like he is him when he's younger. And even though Bridges sees what's happened to Stacey Keach, he's going to make the exact same you know, mistakes. Mm-hmm. He said um, it's a movie about people who, yes, have been sort of beaten down he said he didn't think that popular audiences cared very much about the spiritual processes of defeated people uh, because he himself is fascinated by it he's a legendary uh, drinker in his own right the boxing stuff appealed to him you mentioned brando did you know brando was supposed to be in it i heard that uh somewhere in the back of my mind uh, but I don't know the circumstances of why he wasn't in it. I know he was talked about being in it. Yes, he was going to be in it, and they were all excited. He loved the script, and then like they tried to get in touch with him, and he didn't get back to them again, and <laughs> Houston put it like, I don't chase actors, and so he tried it for a little bit, and then he's like, you know, I'm not doing it, and so he just moved on, and word is that Brando was very offended by that and I think wanted to be chased, but that wasn't Houston's style. Houston said he went over to Spain <laughs> to see a movie that uh, Stacey Keach was making at the time. Uh, I don't know how he knew about him. Maybe he had just heard about him. Um, this was the first movie he made back in America after um, mm. The Misfits, I think like 11 or mm. so years earlier. That was his last American picture. Mm. And so he'd heard about Stacey Keach. He went to Spain, saw him making this movie that didn't do very well, but he said Keach was remarkable. Jeff Bridges tells a great story about getting a phone call. Bridges had made a few movies by this point, mm. but he got a phone call like, yeah, you know, you go to Spain to meet Houston since he was there. I don't know why, if he just wanted to see if Bridges <laughs> would do it. 
or maybe like yeah. the synergy of Keech is here. So like his character, let's get Bridges here. And so Bridges tells this great story about like he showed up, he met some gorgeous woman. They had some drunken night, but he's like, but I didn't get laid. I just got hammered. And so he woke up really <laughs> sick and he was like, oh shit, I have to meet John Houston. And they met at some right. art museum. And he said it was the weirdest interview he's ever had for a job <laughs> because he's like, they're walking around an art museum and Houston isn't saying anything. And he's like, I'm just trying to, you know, walk a straight line at this point. Right. Um, Houston's just kind of looking at me out of the corner of my eye, not asking me any questions. And then basically just let him go and hired him. It was the weirdest thing. Wow. I don't know if he was maybe seeing what he would do uh, since he is somebody who's very into the casting process. He doesn't direct. Maybe he's just going to see how Bridges reacted. I don't know if it was a game he was playing, <laughs> but I think it's... He might have been drunk. He might have been drunk too and just couldn't... He, he might have had that hangover. Maybe he met the same woman after Bridges. Couldn't get over the hangover. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like he's trying to use it. Anything is possible. Anything um, is I think possible. Fat City's <laughs> I think Fast City spoke to me because I didn't grow up in Stockton, California. I grew up in a rural area. But yeah. a lot of those characters are people I knew. I knew the oh, guys yeah. like Billy Tully. I knew women like Susan Terrell's character. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I know those lost souls, those people yeah. that, you know, life is just beating you down. And some of it's your fault and some of it's just circumstance. Yep. And, and you know, and so... I've seen those stories play out time and time. I used to be a, a bouncer um, when I was in college. And uh, I was a bouncer at a, 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 like a, it was a dance club, but it was one of those, it was more of a, it was a bar that had a dance floor. Um, and, uh, you know, you see people like the Billy Tully's and, and, and that Susan Tyrell character that come in there and they're there. And you notice like you're here every week, you know, and you're by yourself and you do a lot of hard drinking and you laugh a lot but the smile never reaches your eyes, you know? No. And, and, oh. and I, I, I think that's why that, that movie, that movie touched me so much. And there's a scene in Fat City when uh, Billy is uh, trying, I guess, to seduce Susan Tyrell's yeah. character. And she, she goes on this drunken tirade. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder, I would love to know what her process or preparing for that was. Yes. Because again, as a balance and also just, as somebody who grew up around people who like to drink, that was very realistic. The okay. the, the the wild swings in in tone uh, from joy and and Highs laughter and to the depths of despair. Yeah, and yeah. and 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 Billy, when you watch that scene, if if you look at it just the first time, you're like, well, he's just he's just trying to be woke up. He's trying to get yeah. Up. He's just kind of putting up with whatever she's saying. But if you watch yep. it again, and I've watched it, I went before, you know, our, our uh, uh, for the podcast. Um, it's not so much that he just wants to get hooked up. He does. Mm -hmm. But he also sees something of a kindred spirit in her. There's something that's what I thought that he yep. wants to take. Care of. Yeah. yeah. He, he wants, wants to give to her a chance. He, wants he hasn't had a chance. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, but of course, it's. You know, it, it's doomed from the start because they both yes. can't deal with their own individual neuroses. And so, you know, it's it's never going to be what they think it's going to be. You know, I, I think, you know, I was thinking of watching that movie and I was thinking back to uh, a movie we talked about before 
on the uh, Neon Noir podcast of Thief and yes. the difference between a character like James Kahn's character in Thief and a character like Billy Tully, both of these people are emotionally broken. But James Kahn's character in Thief, he has taken that brokenness and forged it into this armor, you know? He's it's it's his defense against the world, whereas Tully has just given in to the brokenness. He's given in to the trauma, and yep. you know he puts up a fight, but it's 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 not really a fight. It's it's more just theatrics. He it's like a fight that he does because he kind of feels like he has to, but his heart isn't in it. And so I just you know again I find that fascinating how different characters are able to handle different situations um, and how they're able to express themselves. Um, differently. And again, going back to Houston, I want to say somebody's direction in this. Um, I mean, he said he didn't direct actors and stuff. And I guess that's true to a certain extent. But I definitely think he gave Keach and, and Jeff Bridges and, and, and Susan Tyrell um, ideas of where he wanted oh, the yeah. story to go, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because it plays out like a Greek tragedy. And so um, that last scene with uh, Tully oh, and, God, and Jeff yeah. Bridges drink, mm-hmm. drinking coffee. And it's just this, and again, a moment that's allowed to breathe was just these two men drinking coffee and, and it's quiet and nobody's saying anything. And then they sort of fade to black after like three or four minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a powerful scene. And it is the scene that is sort of, if you are optimist, you could say, well, you know, Jeff Bridges' character is not going to end up like that. He's going to mm-hmm. pull it together. Uh, but if you're a pragmatist like I am, you're like, you're going down that same road, you're making yeah. those same decisions, and you'll see, you know, Tully is your future. As I am, you shall be, so to speak. And um, but I love that it's the two men, two broken men in the final scene, you know, yep. that you know, these these two men that have basically chased everybody else away and made these bad decisions, and I also had really bad luck, like. Um, Stacey Keach's manager in the movie is an awful person. He's terrible. Uh, yeah, he's, coach he's, on he's Cheers Ruben. before he was coach. Yeah, yes. yeah, and he's just awful. And it's like he's, you know, he never had a chance. If that's the best, if that's the person in your corner, you better get out that corner. And so, yeah, like, and that's the only one he knows to send Jeff Bridges to as well. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's also just what you grow up around and also your personality, like they are making bad decisions, but maybe, you know, where they grew up, these are the choices that they're making because they might not know any better or they haven't been around. They haven't been to Paris and been fine arts painters or members of the Mexican cavalry or whatever. (laughs) So they haven't been around the world. Um, I do love the dignity that it gives to people um, that are the down and outers. Uh, Houston once said that personally, I admire the down and outers depicted in the film, people who have the heroism to take it on the chin in life, as well as in the ring. He filled the movie with people he knew from his own boxing life and also just people who are around Stockton. Um, He has so many good stories about Uh, making this movie and how he found people like uh, the black actor who is telling Stacey Keach uh, the story about his marriage in the fields. Uh, Basically Mm -hmm. he came and auditioned for Houston and I think he was just somebody around Skid Row, I believe. And so he held the sheet of paper and he did it and it was 
um, perfect. And he, you know, was looking at the paper the whole time. And Houston said, okay, do you think you can learn the lines? And he said, oh, I do know them. And then he admitted that he couldn't actually read, but he had people read it to him a handful of times and he knew it right away. Houston said he had it down. He was perfect. It's like, it was his story. Um, he also tells a story, I guess, about Muhammad Ali watching the movie and making, um, the projectionist stop it when he saw, uh, the up and coming, um, young fighter saying certain things. He's like, that is me. And they're like, oh, it's Mm -hmm. like, you No, that is me at 16. Like, so I know this really did strike a chord with, um, people who know boxing, even people that Mm -hmm. successful. And also the ones that Houston grew up with. I love it. I I was not a bouncer in a bar, but my uncle owned a bar <laughs> and my grandma actually dated an ex-boxer. She also had a oh, weakness wow. for alcoholics. I think he had been an alcoholic, but he was fine then. I yeah. loved him. He was a little punch drunk. He had, had taken some hits. He had told us mm-hmm. about fighting way back when and getting hit by like somebody with um, washers or something. In oh, the wow. In a glove. Yeah. Yeah. So he had all those stories, but I mean, he just loved my grandma and was a really sweet guy. They didn't, you know, wind up getting married, but we're together for a while. And so when I watch this movie or these like that, I I think of all these people that I've known over the years, like my uncle or, you know, my grandma's boyfriend or all these people. And I do love that he's giving them dignity. And I think that's really nice. Yeah. I'll say one more thing about Fast City before we move on is it's, like you were talking about cinematography, the cinematography is excellent. It's exquisite. It really is. But it, it gives it all this sort of sun-dappled, day-glow uh, uh, patina. But also underneath that is sort of, and the way the light and shadow plays on this film, underneath that is this sort of creeping darkness, you know, mm-hmm. on the yeah. edge uh, of, of the frame. And, you know, the light, especially when he, they're in the bars, uh, and anybody who's ever been in a bar, if you watch this movie, if you, if you, and I've been in a bar sometimes way longer than I should have, been, <laughs> not as a bouncer but as a patron, um, and that moment where it's like you realize, oh wow, it's it's four o'clock, you know, and the sun's yeah. about to come up. And we've been here drinking all night long. And so that moment where you realize, like in New York you know, when you called oh, your wife, I love that. Yeah. Story. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's like we 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 gotta go home. We gotta get yeah. out of here. We gotta get out of this place. Yep. And that walk. And I think I think if you're in a certain place in your life, like if you're out on a night on the town and you're That's with different. your friends, mm-hmm. and, and it's just a wild night. But I've seen. I've been in those bars. I've seen those people that this is their life. This is their daily regimen. And there's something, there's something wistful and sad about that. But yep. there's also something as a writer, as a creative person, <sighs> intriguing in a way that's almost, I feel, voyeuristic. But, yes. you know, when I, when I see people like that, I want to know your story. Like, what, mm-hmm. what happened to you, man? Like, yeah. why are you like, what, what, what brought you, what decisions, what roads brought you here? Um, yep. And not in a facetious way, not in a way that but is fascinated. Uh, condescending. Yeah. yeah, I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm the guy that will go talk to a person at the end of the bar. I, I know, like, I always do that. Um, but <laughs> Fat City does that. Fat City, like you said, it gives them that modicum of dignity and respect. 
Um, yeah. And it's also just an incredible character study. It really is. It is. Yeah. He's not trying to put like a sunny ending. There's no just optimistic. Well, then he won the fight and he's champion of the world. I mean, not to, you know, uh, denigrate Rocky, which John Huston was asked about several times. And he loves mm. that movie, especially the mm. first one, I should say, not the other oh, ones. Yeah. Um, and I do, too. It's one of my favorite films. Got to watch it on Thanksgiving, man, every year. Um, I love yeah. Rocky, man. People, people knock it. Rocky. It's, it's become this cliche, which, you know, he, a lot of people that haven't seen the movie, you know, Rocky doesn't win that first fight. A lot of people are like, oh, not he wins all. all his fights. No, he loses that fight. Rocky is... Rocky is fat sitting with a good dose of uh, psychotropic drugs. <laughs> <laughs> for the first hour of that first movie, I mean, yeah. things are rough for Rocky. He's They're a bleak. thumb breaker for the mob, you know? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's, I think when people just think of Rocky and they think of, you know, the songs and, you know, the happy think of Ivan Drago. Yeah, yeah. they think and of Ivan and all that. And uh, no, go but, back to the know, source. Go back to Rocky the that, first. That cliche of Rocky, you know, again, you know, punching the uh, sides of meat. I think people don't realize he's doing that in that first movie, in that first scene, because he can't afford a heavy bag. He can't afford the gym fees. No, you know? not at all. And so he has to practice on these sides of beef. And he did. And it's funny because it, it, it's Chekhov's punch, so to speak, because yep, it bears fruit later in the, in the story. <laughs> yeah, because he has that, he learns to throw that wicked left that, that crumples Apollo Creed in a fight because he learned to throw it and he learned how to break ribs on those sides of beef. And so, you know, not to get into, into far in the weeds about Rocky, but Rocky and Fat City, I think boxing especially is a great metaphor for life, for yep. the downtrodden and for, and for the, uh, for life, but uh, for the downtrodden, because boxing is one of those sports where it doesn't matter your background. It just matters how hard you can hit and how hard you can take a hit. Yeah. And I think that's like the size of the you know, dog in the fight yeah. is the fight in the dog. Exactly. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, when we're talking about Fat City and shooting with Houston, it kind of helps if you know how to take a punch and throw a punch. Because from what I read, <laughs> like the cut that Jeff Bridges gets is a real cut. He's like, my eye was bleeding. And uh, <laughs> Peach got knocked out because I guess they did work with like a world class. This is how you fight guy right. choreography. But then Houston would just like put two people in a ring and just say, go fight for two minutes. And uh, so <laughs> Peach is like, when I hit the mat, I hit the mat. And I think it was, he said his wife or his girlfriend got so mad when he came home pounded. Uh, and she went and yelled at Houston and is like, how dare you get my husband hurt or boyfriend, whatever it was. And she's like, dear, it's just a movie. Don't worry. It's just a movie. But it's their body. I hear that. Yeah, I love it. But more on the making of Fat City from the Houstons by Lawrence Grobel. Quote, for John, making Fat City was like a return in his mind to the days when he wasn't hampered by a nagging cough and didn't need oxygen in order to breathe deeply. It wasn't a depressing film about life's losers, but rather a swan song to his own glorious youth, to the days when all that mattered was getting into the ring to show what you had of being, for however short a time, the very best you could be. At the end of the picture, there was a scene with Jeff Bridges and Stacey Keach in a cafe when Keach turns and sees men playing cards. For both Keach and Bridges, it became a Houston moment to treasure. 
It was one of those calls, report to the set at 2 a.m., Bridges said. It was an actual location. John was there with his oxygen tank. He looked like he was asleep or dead. Nobody had the balls to go to him and say, we're ready, Mr. Houston. All of a sudden, his eyes bolted open and he said, I've got it. Have you ever been at a party when for no reason everybody just stops? When all of a sudden it's all a tableau, you're alone in eternity for a moment. When Stacy turns around, I want everybody to just stop what they're doing. Why, John? Keach asked. I have no idea, Houston answered. Sometimes the devil just gets into me. We can just freeze frame, Russ Saunders, the assistant director, suggested. No, 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 John said. I want the cigarette smoke to continue going. I don't want it to look like a stock frame. I just want everybody to stop. Keach saw it as brilliant. Time stops for a moment. And Bridges said everybody thought he was in a trance, receiving messages from God knows where. Seeing him in such a feeble way and then having him spring to life like that with a great idea, it was memorable. In that scene, John did what he often did. He turned away from the actors so he could concentrate on what they were saying. I was standing behind them where I couldn't see the close-ups, John said. I could tell by their voices if it was right. That was the only argument I ever had with John in my life, Stark recalled. Stacy Keach was talking to an old Chinese guy and John wasn't looking at them. I noticed about four takes, which was more than John usually made. Then I finally said, come on, John, let's get off our ass. Will you turn around and let's get this thing done? And he just blew up at me. He was listening to what they said, which was more important than watching him, which I didn't understand, end quote. Yes. Lastly, we have another film that Houston made that received an Oscar nod and award for Best Supporting Actress, this time for his daughter, Angelica Houston, in the 1985 crime comedy Percy's <coughs> Honor, based upon the novel by Richard Condon and adapted by Condon and Janet Roach, and starring Jack Nicholson, Kathleen Turner, Robert Loggia, William Hickey, John Randolph, and Lawrence Tierney centered on two highly skilled mob assassins played by Turner and Nicholson who fall in love, marry, and then are hired to kill each other, of course, in a very twisty, complex plot involving a love triangle with Houston. It's the recipient of eight Oscar nominations and was a critical hit at the time of its release. However, the gangster comedy might have been a box office disappointment, Uh, because I think it would have been hard for prospective viewers to anticipate its approach. Like even Nicholson didn't know he was making a comedy right away uh, and its (laughs) tone, but it is one of John Huston's last vital works. Additionally, I know it is one of your favorites as our good mutual friend and uh, one of Sean's best friends, Nikki Dolson told me. So I would love to hear (laughs) about your connection to the movie and how that started. Oh, man. So Princess Honor was one of the first movies that I saw on VHS. Um, my next door neighbor was my aunt and uh, her and her husband were the first people I knew that had a VCR. Ooh, nice. So what? Yeah. So one weekend, uh, this was after the days of late. Again, I'm d- telling how old I am. This is after the days of Laserdisc, which Laserdisc for anybody listening was just like a giant CD. 
or a giant yes, DVD. I remember uh, those. It was the size of a record of a vinyl record. They cost a and, fortune oh, you had too. To, they yeah. cost a fortune, and you had to. And if it was a long movie, you had to take it out and turn it over and put yep. it back in and watch it. The and original so, flipper uh, Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we, uh, my, we didn't. Have, my uh, mother and and my brother and I, we didn't have a car. We lived with my grandparents, and my mm-hmm. aunt and her husband had a car. He had a good job. Um, he worked for a, a government a government installation at a naval shipyard, so he he made good money. Um, and so my aunt would always kind of like let me hang out with her kids when they got new stuff. They got all, they always got new stuff. Um, So, you know, they, they always got new bikes and stuff and everything. And they got the newest toys and and the VCR was the newest toy that they got. And so um, when they were going to go to get the uh, VHS tapes, they asked me to come along and I was like, Oh, okay. So I'll go. So we go down to, um, (laughs) again, this is the wild frontier of VHS tapes back in the day. We go down to this place that was renting them. And it was a guy who had converted his garage into a video. Oh, show. you told me about that. And so, yeah. And he had a soda machine that sold beer. So for 50 cent, you could get a whole can of beer if you wanted, which me and my cousin tried to sneak out of the place one time. We got caught and got in so much trouble. But anyway, <laughs> um, so we're down there and you could rent a VHS tape for $2. And I had five bucks. And I rented the original Halloween and oh, wow. I rented Pritzy's Honor because <laughs> I liked, um, I, I, I was a weird kid. I had seen five easy pieces on PBS uh, a couple weeks before that. And I just mm-hmm. became a Jack Nicholson fan at like 14. Yep. I, I like, I, I'm going to oh, watch Oh, I was a huge Nicholson. fan by that age. And, yeah. so, <laughs> and so I, I was like, Pritzy's Honor. Um, I had read in the paper the reviews of it the year before, right? Because uh, mm-hmm. back in the day, it took like almost two years or a year and a half for a movie to come out on VHS. Oh, it took forever. It was forever. And yeah. so I, and so I remembered it, and I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get this. I gotta get. And my cousin was, they picked on me the whole ride home. Like, oh, my God, why'd you get this movie? This is terrible. Because you know they like all got horror movies or action movies and yeah. stuff. And, and I'd got one horror movie, and 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 I'd wasted my two dollars on this but um anyway an oscar winning um, film long story short yeah nobody else cared about the oscar winning film was all like you know we we need to get friday the 13th and halloween and 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 nightmare on elm street and you just wasted one of our choices on this crap and i was like okay so nobody would watch it with me and um uh we went home and we were watching we're having a movie night and after we'd watched all the horror movies which i love those too um my aunt stayed up with me and me and my aunt watched Prissy's on him together oh, and nice. she liked it she she was yeah. like this is really cool and so anyway i remember watching it and i was like this is what i remember thinking this is what really good writing can do it can make the darkest things funny yeah and, and and that was sort of my inarticulate way of thinking about black comedy satirical comedy as a 14 year old um so this was one of the first you'd seen that was like um combining those elements i think for me it was probably like the player and a little bit of cohen's and then i saw prissy's honor yeah yeah around the same yeah yeah i saw prissy's honor and then the next week i got um i saw eating raul so those were back to back and so but prissy's honor was the first movie i'd ever seen where it's like 
oh man, it's these mafia dudes and Jack Nicholson in it and Kathleen Turner, who I had a huge crush on at the time. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh wow, this is wow. But then it's like it, like you said, it flips the script. It becomes sort of a comedy. You know, Jack Nicholson's hitman is this. He's going through an existential crisis of his own. He yeah. reads um, what, what's that thing? He reads uh, uh, like women's magazine, like Cosmopolitan, because he's trying yep. to gain insight on his relationship with Angelica Houston's character, which is an on again, off again thing. Um, you know, I remember even as a kid watching that movie. And when he introduces Kathleen Turner to people, and I remember even as a kid, like Angelica Houston is going in that. I remember thinking that she is not going to let that stand. Especially when they told that tragic story. Yeah. Yes. I was like, I don't know how you thought this was going to work. But anyway. (laughs) She is an Italian Um, lady Macbeth, basically. I think how she looked at the role. And she's amazing. She had the dialect coach. uh, It was the woman who actually played John Travolta's mother in Saturday Night Fever was her dialect coach. So she was working on that. I think she is actually the best thing in the movie. I enjoy Mm -hmm. it. I think it's a fun movie. I haven't seen it in decades. I'm kind of mixed on Jack and Kathleen's performances as much as I love them. Uh, And I love the little weird coincidence that this is like, couple years after she made body heat and played maddie walker she's playing another walker in this so it's kind of like kathleen turner couldn't escape that name and it's great <laughs> and she's gonna you know somehow be uh, the person to bring down men with this great name of walker um which yeah. i love also walker has some connotations which is you know walking um but anyway also <laughs> you have I, I think jack for me he's marvelous but I know he was really conflicted. Like he didn't get that it was mm-hmm. supposed to be funny. He talks about the first table read, how they got to the line, uh, what kind of creep doesn't catch a baby, you know? And and the <laughs> whole time, like everybody just ripped up in laughter and applause. And he just said, this is funny. Like he was asking, this is a comedy. And I think he almost went the other way. He's a little cartoonish, a little buffoonish. And he and... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Houston kind of butted heads slightly. I think Houston told him the thing about you, Jack, is you've played mostly intelligent characters up to this point. Mm-hmm. Even if they seem like assholes, they're they're also really smart. And he said, we really need him to be dumb. Like you need to play him mm-hmm. dumb. And I think he might have taken it to heart a little bit. My other thought with uh, Kathleen Turner is she also butted heads slightly because she didn't think her character should be 100% in love with Jack. She thought she was kind of playing him or toying with him and figuring out how to use him for protection or how should she work that angle. And uh, Houston was, nope, it has to be love. And and so at the end of the movie, with the slow-mo, she had some issues with how the death scene was shot. Um, she wanted to make it more obvious that her um prerogative and so i know there were some issues there but overall i think it's a really fun movie i love that it's kind of like the comedic godfather it opens at a wedding even Mm -hmm. so it has all of these great staples of the italian experience i think it's really fun that way i i love some of the stuff that you're gonna get the second or third time you watch it like um that song that uh kind of links together um 
Kathleen Turner and Jack's character, they have this love song and they pick it out and uh, it's called Noche de Ronda. And I actually looked it up. Mm -hmm. This is the good thing about the internet. Now, when I saw this then, I mean, (laughs) Sean, we would have had to go to the library to check this out. Yes. Now Google and the lyrics for this thing, (laughs) it tells this love story about this doomed couple and like, you left me die tell him i'm dying from so much waiting and then tell her i'm dying and they're dying and so i love that this romantic ballad is kind of foreshadowing the end of the movie so there's so much good stuff in it yes i thought the chemistry between um jagnelson and kathleen turner was it even as on on third and fourth viewing it isn't super strong yeah, like their chemistry just doesn't pop off the screen, but they overcome it by just the force of their performances. Yeah, you know, it just that, and, and I think it's also indicative of, like you said, some of the behind scenes stuff. But also, these are two characters, like you know, uh, Charlie's dumb, but he's also a killer, and so I he think is. these are people yeah. who are reticent. Yeah, reticent with their feelings. So they're it's, it's hard for them to really they they either are engaged in a torrid passionate sexual experience or they're kind of they don't have they don't know how to just hang out you know it's it's yeah all or they nothing have no chill yeah. yeah yeah no chill there's there's no downtime it's either yeah. they're banging they're not watching no, movies yeah they're banging no. or they're killing yeah yeah and that's it and they, they exist in these extremes and so i think that lack of chemistry it is allowable it doesn't diminish from the film because yeah. it, it's really indicative of how their relationship is. Plus um, they just yeah, met. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it's funny that uh, I didn't know that some of the backs, that's why I love coming on the podcast because you always get the back behind the scenes oh. stuff. <laughs> I didn't know the behind the scenes stuff, but, uh, and so that's fascinating behind the scenes stuff. But um, I thought that the idea of these two killers trying to make it work was fascinating um and again we're talking about johnny houston and again that his lack of a signature style is his style you know mm-hmm. this movie's not like key largo it's not like treasure sierra madre it's not like fat city you know it's sort of a ramshackle you know almost screwball comedy set in the in the world of the mafia and mm-hmm. again his ability to take that on and and just you know sit down and film it. All right, we're doing this. Here we go. I don't know if a lot of directors today have that ability to switch up genre, mm-hmm. style, tone, so effortlessly and, and the way that he could do it. He did. Um, yeah. You know, I, yeah. Like and, you, I think the movie has hasn't aged great. Um <laughs> it's still one of it's still a fun movie. I still like it. Oh, um, yeah. some of the motivation are 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 weak but angelica houston's performance is still incredible incredible and i love that for her because he had made a movie with her in the 60s um some love story and they kind of she was i mean i think she was 16 at the time and she wanted to be an actress and he wanted her to wait he never wanted her to be a child actress and he said even as a kid like some of his colleagues would like go up to her and want to put her in movies and he's you know over my dead body and then finally he found a project and wanted to direct it himself and um she was not great in the film I mean she was new but he like never forgot that and so Mm. I read that he was kind of worried about having her in 
this film and uh, just right away knew, no, she has this down. And so I love that for her and their relationship toward the end of his life. He really became um, kind of, I think, as a means of making up for not being around the family very much. He wanted mm -hmm. to be around the family more and help launch Danny and Angelica and their other um, brother and just be around the family a little bit more. And so I do love that they got to work together for this. And she's so funny. I also think it's great because this is around the time that she was with Jack Nicholson in real life, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Kathleen Turner said that because their characters weren't simpatico in the movie, they didn't want to, you know, buddy up much. And mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Turner didn't really get a chance to hang out too much with Angelica, but she said she considers her so good and so fascinating. But Houston was so serious about the thing that even though she was living with Jack all the time, she decided we're going to have separate hotel rooms because oh, wow. she didn't um, want to take the, the work home with her and then it'd be too much <laughs> togetherness. And I can see that, right, right. I guess, when um, Joel Cohen and Francis McDormand shot Fargo, they did the same thing, got advice from oh, Tim wow. Robbins and um, Susan Sarandon yeah. who said, get your own hotel. Like, that's the best thing yeah. to do. And they did because even though, I mean, they're both actors and they love each other, um, I think the line was Jack said he didn't shed his Charlie Partana character um, mm -hmm. until like the end of dinner. And she sometimes was May Rose well past coffee and dessert. <laughs> so I think that works. Yes. Yeah. That's funny. No, I think it, it's a, like I said, I think she's the, the shining star in that movie. Um, but there are so many like great character actors in that movie. William Hickey is fabulous, I think. Yeah. You know, the line where, you know, she gotta go, Charlie. It's like just it's like, what? That's the man's wife. But um yeah. Uh, but uh yeah, like you said, it's the uh it's the doppelganger of the godfather, it's the humorous godfather, so to speak. You know, there's no it Michael is. um correlation, but uh it definitely is taking sort of taking the, the mick, as they say, out of the out of the uh stereotypical gangster movie. Again, it, it's it's indicative of John Houston's insatiable curiosity as yes. as a filmmaker, as an artist, larger than life the, people. Yeah, yeah, as a creative person that he wanted to examine that world, and the fact that he did it as late in life as he did, and he did it through the prism of a comedy, which yep. I don't think people would have associated with him. I think I, no, I think I for me you. as a yeah. writer, yeah, I think for me as a writer, that's the thing I admire about him the most is that. He is like sort of the film version of a Joe Lansdale, where I just do what I want to do. My genre is John Houston's genre. And so I just make any film I want. What interests you know, and, yep. and this Yeah, what interests me. I'm not bound by convention or genre. And I think, especially in today's market, in today's world, that's so much more difficult to do, I think. Whether you're a filmmaker, a writer, a musician, it's hard. It's hard to experiment. It's hard to go where the interest takes you. And and filmmakers like John Houston were, they did it fearlessly. You know, they did it and and consequences be damned. And yeah. you have to admire that for all of his faults and foibles as a human being, as a father, as a husband, as an artist, he was fearless. And I I you know you have I admire that fearlessness. I think it's uh, one of his great qualities. Um, aside from yeah. his you know insightful artistic eye as a filmmaker 
Um, no, just I agree. To have the moxie to say, I'm going to do what I want. And, you know, you can like it. On, as my mom would say, you can like it or lump it. I don't care. I'm going to do it. And so uh, that's the thing that draws me to his work again and again. Um, not just the three that we talked about tonight, but like I, The Treasure of Sierra Madre is one of my favorite films. I love that movie. I think mean, it just, you talk about existential malaise and ennui and the human condition and, you know, the price of greed and what it does to men's souls. And, uh, you know, and so uh, he's just one of those filmmakers. I find myself uh, returning to his work again and again, not so much to be inspired by it in my own work, but just to enjoy it as a film, as a yes. film goer. Yeah, no, I, that's beautifully put. And I, I love the three that we chose, I think also contradictory to what he says about like, I can't be defined or whatever. I think these movies that he chose do really hark to where he was at in his life. Like with mm-hmm. Key Largo, this was post-war. He had questions himself mm-hmm. and that's what that film is. Uh, Fat mm-hmm. City was made around the time he'd had a bunch of like duds in a row mm-hmm. this was the era of you know boy including that movie with angelica houston a walk with love and death the kremlin letter mm-hmm. um this was also the era of the macintosh man which he made after fat city but i think he mm-hmm. made a joke that you know the worst movie we've ever made maybe we're making it and it was that one <laughs> but i actually yeah. find it very entertaining and then this film um came at a late career renaissance where you know post annie and it was all about family a quick excerpt on family and the making of pritzy's honor from the houstons by lawrence grobel quote as the wedding scene sequence was being set up A crowd of school kids stood outside St. Anne's looking for a glimpse of Nicholson. It wasn't difficult for one slim 14-year-old boy to slip unnoticed into the church. He watched from the balcony and then went down for a closer look. There was Nicholson. And there was the old man in tan fatigues and a white beard whose hacking cough didn't detract from the fact that he was in charge. Are you John Houston? The boy asked, I am. And who might you be? Justin Miller. My friends call me Judd. Well, Judd, he motioned to the boy to come sit by him. And for the next few hours, as they waited between shots, they found out things about each other. Have you ever been married? The boy asked. Many times, Houston said. What does your father do? I'll tell you, John said and did. Do you think a lot about him? Just about every day. I hope you're as close to your father as I was to mine. I was very close to my grandfather, Justin said. He told John how when he was a small boy, he would always watch his grandfather wake up in the morning and how they did special things. One day he went to play with him and his grandfather didn't get up. He was dead. Justin was four years old and needed a psychiatrist to help him through his grief. John put his hand on Justin's head. I'll be your surrogate, Grandpa, he said quietly. It was like spending time with someone that I'd known a long time, Justin said. Over the next six weeks, while they shot in Brooklyn, Justin would sit next to Houston, talking with him for hours, joining him each day for lunch. 
he became the object of some considerable dislike among the cast and crew who were all vying for John's attention. Everybody else was jealous, recalled Janet Roach, because here was this pimple-faced boy in a ridiculous tweed overcoat when it was 80 degrees outside getting John's attention. It created sibling rivalry. It was extraordinary. Justin learned a great deal about filmmaking during his time on the set, but he learned even more about art. I knew nothing about art before I met him. I was preoccupied with myself, but the time I was with him, I never felt like I was wasting a second. Houston told him to read Vasari's Lives of the Painters, to study Michelangelo and Da Vinci, and then to read about the Tuscan primitives. Besides Angelica, perhaps the person whose life was most affected by Pritzi's was young Justin Miller, who began a correspondence with Houston and a mutual exchange of expensive art books. After he left, Justin said, I felt different, as though I really met someone who kind of shaped my life. If you take life in different stages, that stage really brought my confidence up a level. I don't know what my life would have been like if I'd never met him. End quote. It was all about family, um, you know, yeah. with Prissy's honor. And then his final film, The Dead, which was uh, the James Joyce um, adaptation that his son wrote. So uh, starring Angelica as well. So, yeah, it's kind of just a nice portrait of his life and what interests him. Exactly what you just said, uh, but also a little... You can be a geek and look behind the scenes at where he was at. A little mea culpa, maybe to his 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 family. Um, a little bit, yes. Know, <laughs> we didn't get in, we didn't get into it too much, but he, you know, when you live that sort of life, it, it yeah. makes it difficult to be. You know, you're not going to be Ward Cleaver. And no, so, not uh, at all. <laughs> I think, yeah, and so I think it made it made relationships. I've read her book, Angelica Houston's book, which is mm-hmm. fascinating, a biography, her autobiography, and a. You know, it's fascinating when you have these larger than life characters as parents, because I think we as film fans, we see them as the director or the actor or the, or the talent. And yes, for them, and how their great mom and- is it that she's mm-hmm. reckoning with her dad as a man's man in the character mm-hmm. of May Rose, whose dad is mm-hmm. a man's man? Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. I think that's fascinating. I think that's the human element that uh, yeah. he's able to bring. And and in in Prissy Arnold, she's able to bring it as well. You know, it's sort of this sort of this uh, strange therapy session that we all got to watch on film. Yes, (laughs) and I I I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could do it, man. That's wild. That's that's. (laughs) I mean, it's like I think my first book was sort of a a therapy session for me and my relationship with my father. But I don't think that I could have him edit it. You know what I mean? I was like, no. Just, <laughs> uh-uh. Yeah, it's you. You need a little bit of distance. Like, yeah, it would be. Yeah. It would be a lot. Yes. No, I agree with you. And I know you mentioned um, Treasure Sierra Madre, which you also love. I I would give a shout out to, uh, of course, we mentioned the Maltese Falcon, but also the Asphalt Jungle is a Asphalt great Jungle, film. Yes. Um, oh my god. African Queen, The Misfits, Night of the Iguana. Are there any others that you want to be sure to mention? I don't know if it's a great film, but his version of the Bible. Uh, my my grandma thought that was really good. She loved that movie. Yeah. Um, and he had that voice 
that if you imagine the voice of God, because he did some of the narration, you would imagine, yeah, imagine John Houston. And so that was he's like a Werner Herzog before Werner Herzog. If you're yes, we saw that movie. Um, we saw the Bible, his version of the Bible, in a uh, in a uh, uh, summer of vacation Bible school all the time, every year for like three years running. So, oh wow, uh, it was funny because I'm I'm the film geek in the class. So I'm I'm jonesing off like oh wow this is John Houston and this is, and everybody else is like oh this is so boring oh I hate this and I'm like this <laughs> the dude made Maltese Falcon what's wrong with you yes. uh, I think the list of Adrian Smith, invite yeah, him over the list and read Pritzi's honor yeah <laughs> <laughs> I also uh, I, I like to I, I love the list of Adrian Messenger I think that's a one of his underrated films uh, un, and a lot of people don't talk about it anymore but. Um, it's a beautiful study in suspense. Uh, again, post-war uh, yeah. shenanigans, so to speak. And, and so uh, I think he was someone deeply moved by his experiences in war, and he was able to translate that uh, to film. Um, but one more thing about Treasure Sierra Madre before we go. Uh, <laughs> I love that scene. Um, there is a scene where Walter Houston uh, been, has been missing. And uh, we haven't seen him for like 15, 20 minutes. And the other character uh, 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 finds him in this village and he's just living it up. Like, he's just like, yeah, I lost the goal, but whatever. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I'm here with these beautiful the women. The Walter Houston dance, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, and I thought his, I thought his d- direction of his father and his father's performance, which, you know, he did win the Oscar. It's so wonderful and i wonder how much of that influenced john houston as a person later on that that character where here's this person that just kind of takes life as it is you know yeah i'll help y'all find the goal because i want the goal too but if we don't find you know we lost the goal we'll survive it's all right have a pineapple and so <laughs> i i like i i see later on in houston's life he he sort of had that same mentality it's like yep. i want to make movies but, you know, if they flop, they flop. It's whatever. I'm going to go paint. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to live in Mexico. Yes. It'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. They I think asked he was, him uh, about boredom once. And he was like, well, there's always a book to read, a cigar to smoke. And he listed a thing to paint. And then somebody said, and are you forgetting one? And his last thing is, oh, you can make another picture. <laughs> so. <yeah. laughs> and I think that's I think that sums him up. Uh, yeah. I think that was the epitome of the man. And I, I like I said, I think he's. Uh, up there, like I said, with Billy Wilder as being one of the most versatile filmmakers uh, in film history. Uh, yes. And I don't, I don't know. Such if a good we're choice, see, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we're going to see filmmakers like that again. I don't know because, oh, th- yeah. you know, th- I, I think, uh, I think time and circumstances and the movie business has changed, and it's mm-hmm. hard to find filmmakers that have that sort of insatiable curiosity and also have the the courage to follow that curiosity to his natural um, denouement, so. Yes, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I talked your ear off probably all afternoon, but I really appreciate you letting me. Uh, This was a real pleasure and a joy. Oh, no, this was my pleasure. Thank you for having me back. I love, love, love talking film with you, and I love uh, your encyclopedic knowledge of the behind the scenes stuff that I don't know. So I, I, I really enjoy our conversations and thank, yeah. thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. Thank you.
I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.